Hi, ladies. It's so good to see all your faces out there today. I am so excited to be here. My name is Vanita Jones, and I am on the teaching team for Women in the Word. I'm hoping that my voice doesn't get scratchy. I feel like I have a frog in my throat. I've been clearing it for the last hour and a half. But anyway, I think that always happens before I get up here, so I just kind of overlook it. Um, I want to open us with prayer first, so if you'll bow your heads and pray with me. Precious Father, I just thank you for these women. I thank you for their faces. I thank you for their hearts. I thank you for their willingness to learn your word. Father, I pray that your words are my words. And they don't leave my, my mouth void, but they go from here in their hearts. And they're applied to their lives in every aspect of it, Father. I pray that you be here and you bless this time. In Christ's name I pray this. Amen. You know, I can't think of a better place to be than right here on Thursday mornings. You know, it's, I'm sure for a lot of you, it's crazy. Thursday mornings are nuts for me. And I don't know why. I know they're coming every week and you'd think I'd be ready. But I usually am racing around, kicking my kids out of the car like little paratroopers with backpacks on their backs and flying in here at the last minute. And the minute I walk in those doors, it's like I can breathe again. Because there are these like-minded women here doing and desiring the same thing I'm wanting to do too. And it just kind of gives me that boost into, thir- into the rest of the weekend when my family's all home and everybody thinks weekends are nice, but they're crazy, aren't they? Because now they're all back with you. So it kind of gets me ready for all of that, right? Well, I hope you've enjoyed Daniel like I have. I used to think of Daniel as lions and fires and prophecy. Oh my, right? But is there not a ton of stuff in this book? This little bitty book, way back in the Old Testament, is packed with stuff more than lions and fires and prophecy. It's amazing to me. And because of that, if we're going to get out of here to go to lunch with our small group, we're going to dive right in because I want to go through the entire chapter. It's filled with good stuff. And I don't want you to miss any of it, okay? So I want you to turn to chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I just want to give you a little, a little background on this chapter. This is the personal testimony of one of the most powerful men in the entire world at that time in history. And we find out in verse 1 exactly who that man is, isn't it? It says right here, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. And the message actually says, peace and prosperity to all. Now, this first verse opens up, and King Nebuchadnezzar, the great King Nebuchadnezzar that we've been talking about for weeks, is asking that their peace abound and that they prosper greatly. Do you remember this guy? I mean, seriously, how many nations has he conquered, right? People had to be terrified of him. He'd slaughtered Thousands of people, thousands of thousands. He captured tens of thousands of people. He plundered all their treasures. People feared this man. In fact, I read that his favorite quote was, I will tear you limb from limb, and I will turn your your house into a rubbish heap. Nice guy, huh? Not so much this peace and prosperity guy we're seeing here in verse 1, is it? So something big is happening, isn't it? Something big has happened to this man. We're about to read his personal testimony. Now, what I don't want to get into today, and I hope that it didn't happen at your tables either, is 
I've been asked a zillion times, do you think he came to a saving faith in the Lord God? I can tell you, I read commentaries that said absolutely yes. Commentaries that said absolutely not. And commentaries all in between. And you know, ladies, that tells me that that's not for us to know, right? It's not our job to judge the heart of this man, is it? What God wants us to know, he's put in there. And he has packed it with a lot of other stuff that we can focus on. So we're not going to focus on whether he came to his saving faith, but we're going to see where his heart is changing and the journey that he's taking, right? So we go on, and I want to compare this to um, present day. I want you to know how big this really is, okay? It would be like the leader of China, or, or let's say, you know that, where's that crazy dictator of Iran, Ahmadinejad, that guy? calling this worldwide press conference, requiring everybody to listen to it, and guess what he says? He says, I believe that there is one God, and that God is the God of Israel. Wow. Oh, my goodness, ladies, I don't care who you are, that's exciting. This is big, and it's right here in the Bible. Let's read on these next two verses and see what he's actually changed into. It says, It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Oh my goodness. Ladies, one of these kings is not like the other king. Right? Something big is happening here. I kind of think that the things... Of the head for him, his head knowledge has gone to more of a heart thing, don't you think? You see that? You know, I think that because back in Daniel 3, remember we read last week, and specifically in 26, he's calling Shadrach and Meshach out of that big fire, right? And how does he refer to him? It's on your verse sheet. He says, servants of the most high God. Big G, God. Okay, so he knows about God. And then we go on in Daniel 3, 28 and 29, and he says this. He says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and this is how we know who we're dealing with, right? He says, they'll be cut into pieces and their homes turned into rubble. We know this is King Nebuchadnezzar, right? He says, for no other God can save in this way. I mean, do you see that? He's talking about Daniel's God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God as their God. The God of Israel. They worshiped their God. God, Their God saved them. So, ladies, he knows about the God of Israel, doesn't he? It's not a mystery to him. But then we slide on forward to verses 1 through 3 in Daniel 4. And we see I and my and me. It's become a personal thing for him, don't you think? You know, I like to think that this change in him is from a head thing to a heart thing. He seems more peaceful, doesn't he? Even when he's recounting the story in this chapter, he seems more peaceful to me. You know, it's that kind of peace when there's a daily walk with that one true God. He seems at peace. In Romans 5.1 on your verse sheet, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. 
And Psalms 29.11 says, The Lord gives strength to his people, and the Lord blesses his people with peace. I think we're starting to see that peace in this man, don't you think? Now, I don't want you to miss this important insight here. You know, God is not satisfied with their head knowledge alone. He wants and desires a personal relationship with each and every one of you. Not just a head thing for him. He pursues our hearts. He desires our hearts. Because, you know, he knows that when he has our heart, then we're going to develop that kind of faith that can't be shaken, right? When our world is shaken up, we'll have that kind of faith that doesn't falter when everything else is getting crazy all around us. You know, in Psalms 119.2, on your verse sheet, it says, Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. Right? And it says, in Psalms 84.5, it says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you and who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. You see a trend here? And in 86.11, it says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart. Right? He doesn't say, he doesn't say, set your mind on me only. He says, doesn't say, give me an undivided mind, does he? It's because you see, our heart is so valuable to our Heavenly Father. And it leads me to ask you these questions. Is your faith a personal thing with the one true God? Or, or is it just some head knowledge that you, you get on Thursday mornings and occasionally from church or, or even your family's religious traditions you grew up with? You know, or is it that you're reading the Bible so that you can check that off your to-do list every day because it makes you feel better and think things are going to be better? Or is it something you're reading, you're planting it in your heart and you're meditating on it? So you can apply it in every little area of your life. Is it your religion or is it your life? Because I think that is so important to our Heavenly Father. For us to have the impact that we need to have, we have to take that head knowledge and plant it here. So that our faith will grow and grow and God can develop a personal relationship with us and we can impact the world around us, even if our world is going crazy around us, okay? Let's read on. I want to read specifically the next couple of verses in Daniel, just verses 4 and 5. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid, and I was lying in my bed. The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. Now, I want to stop here for just a bit and talk about where he is at this point, okay? I think of it, he says palace. I'm like, whew, I'm there. I would love to have a palace. Wouldn't that be awesome? He's in a palace. It says he's content and prosperous, right? I mean, so I'll be honest with you. I kind of want to be content and prosperous myself. How about you? It's not such a bad thing to do. He knows about God, doesn't he? We've learned that. He knows who the one true God is. He's content and prosperous. So then where's the problem, right? You know, he had the four Ps. He had the palace, he had the power, he had the prosperity, and he had the pleasure, but there was one P missing, wasn't there? And that's the peace. And ladies, I think we spend most of our time, if we'll be honest about it, pursuing these four Ps, don't we? Thinking that these four Ps are going to give us this fifth P. They're going to bring us peace. And you know what? It doesn't. 
It doesn't. And look at King Neb. It didn't, it didn't get him anything either, did it? This guy spent all of his time pursuing these four Ps. And, and I'll tell you the truth. When you pursue the four Ps, the desire of our heart becomes pursuing these and not the things of God. Right? And when we do that, it becomes an issue of our heart and desire of us and God's heart and desire. So being content and prosperous only becomes a bad thing when it takes our focus off the things of God. And ladies, that's exactly where we're seeing King Nebuchadnezzar right here at this point. He has knowledge of a one true God, doesn't he? But his heart is wrapped up in pursuing the four Ps. And ladies, God is about to shake up his world, isn't he? He's about to take him on the ride of his life. In fact, I heard an awesome Bible teacher one time describe this very thing in your life as being taken on a field trip because you didn't choose to learn it in the classroom. It made so much sense to me. Now, as a kid, I have to be honest with you, field trips were the best thing ever. They were the best because, I'll be honest, sitting quietly in a classroom has never been my strong point. In fact, there was usually a chair special chair for Vanita right in the front so she could watch me the whole time. So when I was on a field trip, I was a loose cannon. I was ready to go. But as an adult, now there may be some of you ladies out here that have young children and you adore going on field trips with little kids. I think they're a whipping. I, I'm telling you, I, I can, can't find any redeeming qualities in a field trip with third and fourth graders, okay? And it just happened just recently, my daughter, Tacky, she's the youngest child, she's 13, they were going to go to Dallas to the Holocaust Museum for a field trip. And they were supposed to leave at 8.30 in the morning, not get back till 3 as a kid. Yay, no school time, right? Well, I go at 3.30 to pick her up, and I'm standing in line and sitting in line, and she comes walking out, and I'm telling you, she looks like she has run the Boston Marathon twice. Her face is red as a tomato, her hair's all stringy and her clothes are all like she slept in them. It's a mess. She's a mess. She crawls in the car and I'm like, God, did the bus break down? You know, what happened? Did you walk from Dallas back? What happened? And she said, proceeded to tell me that, you know, they had two different buses. They had the boys' bus and the girls' bus. Yay! Brilliant idea. They're eighth graders. So I'm thinking, what's the problem, right? She said, Mom... There wasn't any air conditioning on either bus that was working. Okay, now, now we've got these mild days, but ladies, this was August 31st, okay? It was 105 on August 31st. And they spent the good part of the day in Dallas traffic, okay? The rest of it, they were touring not your most uplifting place in the universe either, right? But... She goes on to describe they're fanning their skirts and they're fanning themselves with the brochures they got at the Holocaust Museum and, and they're just counting the minutes till they get back to the car. And I, I, I totally toned it out. And I'm like, can you imagine if it was that bad on your bus? How bad it was on that bus full of middle school boys. I mean, that is horrifying thought. Now that is a field trip. I want to avoid it all costs, ladies, at all costs. And that's about what God's about to take King Nebuchadnezzar on, isn't it? A long, miserable field trip with a busload of middle school boys with no air conditioning. And it's not going to be one day, seven years. 
This guy's gone for seven years. So he, but first, instead, God gives him this vision. He kind of gives him a little heads up, doesn't he? He's going to give him this terrifying dream to go, hey, something's about to happen here. I'm going to take you on this filter, but I'm going to give you this little opportunity, a little extra credit, if you will, to maybe avoid, the, avoid this field trip, right? And my first instinct is, come on, Neb. I mean, seriously, he's given you this vision. Can you not figure it out, right? But then God, of course, showed me how many times have I had the opportunity to stay in the classroom? Here I was on yet another field trip at my own choice with a bunch of middle school boys sweating on a bus with no air conditioner. It was miserable, miserable. And talking from experience, King Nebuchadnezzar should have listened to this dream and and learned from it. But we find out, we read on, as we're going to do, I want to read the next three or four verses here. Starting at uh, verse 6, it says, So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, diviners came, I told them the dream, but they couldn't interpret it for me. I think we've heard this before, haven't we? Finally, he says, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. I think we kind of get an idea right here what winning King Nebuchadnezzar's problems is, right? I think we see some pride sliding in here. He's, he's had the opportunity, right, to know that Daniel kind of has that bat phone to heaven with God when it comes to these, to these dreams, right? It happened before. Not only did he interpret the dream in, in Daniel 2, but God told him what the dream was without even knowing it, okay? So, seriously, he went to all these other guys first, and then finally he goes to Daniel, It was astounding to me. You know, either this guy's gotten a head injury in all these battles he's been in, or he's just let his pride kind of slide in. Because, you know, I read that in the ancient world, the conquering nations believed that their gods were more powerful and mighty than the gods of the the nations they had conquered. So, what do we hear about King Nebuchadnezzar? One after the other, right? So, of course, he thought his gods were the best and the most powerful gods out there. So it had to be kind of a hard thing for him to slide over to Daniel and go, hey, your God might be able to answer this for me because mine gods aren't quite getting it, right? So I think there was a little pride here. Now, lest we throw the stone, let's remember we live in a glass house, lady. It's a couple of really important insights here for me. And the first one is that I can tell you one of my first things I do when I face something really scary, I choose the phone a friend option. Bam! Right? Like calling somebody and calling my mom, calling somebody quick, somebody, somebody, when, when what I should have done instead is dropped to my knees and cried out to God, give me wisdom and discernment, protect me, surround me, guide my next footsteps, whatever, just beg him for his mercy and his guidance. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. I'm not saying that you shouldn't seek godly counsel. I think it's a great thing. But I think that's only secondary to prayer first. Okay? It needs to happen first. And you know, the other insight I don't want you to miss here, I I, I remind you that King Nebuchadnezzar had this history with Daniel, right? So it wasn't the first dream that we've gone through with him. 
And what I mean by that is we need to build a history of trusting God and watching him display his power and majesty in our lives so that we can trust him with our futures. You see, we need to build a history of of watching him work his power in everything that we have happening in our lives, no matter what it looks like, and we can see his faithfulness so when those scary, scary things come upon us, we know. We've seen him do it before, and it is so important that we share these times with our children. Because, you know, they, we tend to kind of want to hide these things from our kids. We don't want them to be exposed too early to scary things like this. But, you know what? They need to see us. They need to see us facing all this scary stuff and trusting God. And, and knowing from an early age, hey, I can go straight to the source. And I can learn from that. I think it's so important. And in Psalms 145.4, it says, One generation will commend your works to another, and they will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. Do that with your children, because they love it. We've done that with ours, and they love to hear the stories of when God showed up and saved us once again. It's just so empowering for them. Don't let your prideful or stubborn heart cause you to go to the wrong source. Go straight to the, the source that can actually change things, and actually make things happen. Let's continue. I want to read verses 10 through 18. Okay, and here we're going to get to hear about these visions. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was a fruit, food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. The visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches." But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by him. That's seven years. The decision is announced by messengers. The Holy One declares the verdict so that the living may know the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is a dream that I, Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of these wise men of my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Okay, we get to see what this crazy dream looks like, right? And we see that there's a tree in this dream. It's huge, touches the heavens, right? It feeds everything. It shelters everything. And of course, I hope you got this in your questions. This was the great King Nebuchadnezzar. But also it shows us the domain of King Nebuchadnezzar, right? So what we see, and if we read in 14, we, we find out exactly what's going to happen to this tree, right? It says a tree is going to be cut down, the branch is cut off, the leaves would be stripped, the fruit would be scattered, the animals would flee, and the birds would be scattered. 
So not only is King Nebuchadnezzar going to have this great crisis brought into his life, is it? It's not only him. It's everything within his sphere of influence, isn't it? You know, like King Nebuchadnezzar, our disobedience and our subsequent discipline doesn't just affect us. It affects all those within our sphere of influence. No pressure, huh? Yeah, seriously. We all have an influence over something or somebody, don't we? It could be that infant, that one-week-old infant laying in the crib in your house. Or you may be the leader of a corporation with thousands of people under you or anything in between. Our disobedience affects the people that we influence. And, you know, I think it's really interesting that God uses a tree to describe, um, to, in this vision, to be King Nebuchadnezzar. Because I was reading, then in a book called The Most High God, it's written by Renald Showers. He says that Nebuchadnezzar had personally boasted over and over about being able to cut down huge trees. In fact, he bragged so much about it that he had a picture of himself cutting down a big cedar tree inscribed on a stone. Kind of like a, kind of like a B.C. portrait of himself doing this mighty act, right? But you know, this king who's so delighted in cutting down big trees was going to be cut down himself by the creator of his universe. Doesn't, isn't God the master of poetic justice? I think it's no accident he used a tree here. And you see, no one is so big or so powerful or so successful or so prosperous that God can't shake them up. Or that God can't take them on a long, miserable field trip with a bunch of middle school boys. It can happen to anyone. And I see that in, in, in verse 15, I think, is such a pivotal point in this entire chapter. Actually, it was my favorite verse, and nobody else probably thought the same thing. But after studying it, I loved this verse. At the beginning of that, he talks about the tree and it and the stump and the root. And right, and right in the middle of that, what does he start saying? He starts saying him and his. You know, it's, it showed me a part of God that I love so much. You know, he is mighty and powerful. And he is so mighty and powerful that he can shake up our world. But you know what? He's also loving, compassionate, and merciful. Our Heavenly Father that we serve is not only mighty and powerful, but we also serve a loving, compassionate, and merciful God. You know, my husband uses an illustration when talking about this whole sin in the center thing and trying to explain that that makes it perfectly clear for me. He says that if we had a child that had a really severe illness, we wouldn't like or love that child less, would we? Because they have that illness? No, we would despise that illness that's causing our child to suffer and we would love them even more as we walk through them with this illness that they're going through. You see, it's like that with God and us. When we're living outside of God's will and sin has a grip on our life and we can't seem to get away from it, He doesn't love us any less, ladies. You know what? He despises that sin that's in our lives and it's got a grip on us. And he loves us even more as he walks us through the duration of our discipline. And then he restores us back to a complete person again. And we see that very thing in verse 15. We read that the stump is going to be saved, right? And he's going to bind it with iron and bronze. And 
he's going to place this hedge of protection around King Nebuchadnezzar when he takes him through these seven years with these middle school boys. We see this. He says, we're going to leave the stump on the ground. You leave the roots in the ground. Bind them with iron and bronze. Do not disturb the grass around them. Let him be watered with the dews of heaven. Let him live. He said, let him dwell with the animals among the plants of the earth. You know, in essence, it's kind of like God is the great gardener here with this tree, right? How many of you fancy yourselves as gardeners? Anybody? A few. Wow. That's really sad. I'm sad for you. I love gardens. I love gardens. I love dirt. I love the smell of dirt. I love the smell of it after a rain. I love the feel of dirt. I love to play in the dirt. It makes me happy. And it's probably because I grew up in a little farming community in the middle of north central Kansas. And our house, no kidding, was surrounded on all three sides of this by a wheat field. A huge wheat field. And back behind our house, there was a garden that spanned the good part of a half acre. We grew everything from... Potatoes, peanuts, corn, cauliflowers, anything you can buy in the grocery store. We grew it. Turnips, everything. But we also grew strawberries and watermelons. And I have to tell you, a little funny side of story aside from that, we also did things like ride our horse to the river and back every day and shot sparrows in the hayloft. And my brothers would have me run through the wheat field when it was about this high on me and they would pump their BB guns up and they would shoot like target practice all day long. So, until my mom came out, of course. But we never wanted to go in the house to get a snack, so we'd run through the garden, and the quickest thing to get were the strawberries. Because you didn't really have to wash them. You didn't have to peel them. you just pick them up and eat them. And we'd get just handfuls of strawberries, and that's what we'd eat all day. And it's so funny, because my mother started thinking her strawberry plants couldn't produce strawberries. <laughs> All these, and there were years that went by that she thought, I just need to quit planting strawberries. I just don't get any strawberries. And maybe it's the sun. We were, of course, encouraged her. Keep on. You'll get it right one day, Mom. But we let her in on the secret a few years ago, and she didn't laugh quite as hard as we did. But, but as much as I loved that garden, I love flower gardens, specifically perennial flower gardens. You know, I love the variety and the timing of the flowers. You know, there's always something exciting happening in a perennial flower bed. All year long. Something's popping up, something's going down, something's popping up. There's new color, new green, everything. And I have a picture that Douglas is going to put up for me. So she goes, I love that. Now see, as much as I love that, my husband would look at this and go, well, they need to weed that flower bed. Because he likes annuals. Okay, you know, annual flowers, you get to replant them every year. It's probably because I do the planting that he likes them. But I personally think that the annual flowers are kind of the divas of the flower garden, right? They're kind of showy, and they spread out, and they get all pretty, and you have to pluck at them and tweak them, and you have to water them and weed them and keep them. And as long as the seasons are perfect and you keep everything happy, they bloom and they show, and they're all pretty and showy. And then here comes the first cold front, right? They're gone, right? I think they're divas. I think they're the divas of the flower bed. And I think the spiritual applications in the flower bed are huge. Because you know what? I think there are annual believers just like there are annual flower beds. You know, I think the annual believers, they know about God. You know, King Nebuchadnezzar knew about the God of Israel, didn't he? It wasn't a mystery to him. And these annual flowers like these, the annual believers, they bloom vividly and they just are abundant and go and go and go. And as long as everybody's 
pruning and weeding and watering and taking care of them, they bloom. But then that first harsh season comes along, right? Because their roots only get about that deep. Have you noticed when you pull up your annual flowers, they never come out of that clump you put them in. Those roots are still right there. There's nothing coming out here. So naturally, you have to water them every single day. It's crazy. But I think there are perennial believers. You know, I think they bloom at their appointed times. I think they grow these really deep, deep roots because they spend ample time drawn down, humbled before God, and they can withstand the harsh seasons when those seasons come along, right? You see where I'm going with this illustration? I think God is an awesome perennial flower plant, or flower gardener. I think he's amazing. And I think his perennial flower garden is spectacular. I mean, he's constantly cultivating and, and growing and multiplying and spreading them out. And it just grows and it becomes more and more abundant. In Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 2, it says, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. You see, I think this is exactly what God was doing with King Nebuchadnezzar. You know, he was cultivating him. He wanted him to go a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper. And so he wanted to help him grow those deep roots. And I want to read on in in chapter, uh, verses 19 through 27, and we'll see exactly what that looks like. It says, Daniel then called... Belshazzar was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meanings alarm you. Belshazzar answered, my Lord, if only this dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw which grew large and strong with its tops touching the sky, visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beast of the field and having nesting places in it. For the birds of the air, you, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong, and your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while the roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times passes by him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree. The Most High is issued against my Lord, the king. You will be driven away from the people and you will live with the wild animals and you will eat grass like the cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge the Most High as sovereign or the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots mean that your kingdom will be restored to you. And, and when you acknowledge that heaven rules, therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sin by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your prosperity will continue. Now, in these verses, Daniel was faced with quite a difficult task, isn't he? It's not the interpretation part. Remember that bat phone? God's going to help him with this interpretation. He's done it before. But the hard part is, he's got to tell this king about his, the terrible truth about his future. This is his king. This is not going to be easy. Have you ever had to do that? That really hard thing, like be completely frank with someone you think is out of God's will? I have to admit, I... I don't do it very easily. In fact, I avoid it at all costs. 
I don't have a spine. I mean, I've been told I don't have a spine, but you know what I think it really is? I do have a spine. I just have to share it with Jenny. She only has a spine half the time, too. She has the same spinal issues that I have. We can't confront people very easily. Now, my husband, on the other hand, he's going to call a spade a spade. Bam, right in there. And, you know, I kind of admire that, but I kind of loathe it, too, because sometimes it comes right back to me. But, you know, like that, Daniel has to do this hard thing, right? He has to tell this king what's going to happen in this crazy dream and what it's going to look like. And, and he has to do it in love, doesn't he? And he does it in love. He doesn't do it confrontationally. He's not mean. He's not arrogant about it. You know, like Daniel, we are called to share God's truth in love. And ladies, that in love part sometimes can be the hardest thing we do. And that's why you never do that without time before God, allowing him to guide your words and your actions and your thoughts so that it's his truth and not your truth, right? And we see that Daniel does this in love and kindness. He says, my Lord, if only this dream applied to your enemies and the meanings to your adversaries. Now, I'm pretty sure those would not have been the first words out of my mouth, right? I'd have been, come on. Come on. I mean, seriously, you can't get this. He's giving you a vision. He's telling you what he's going to do. Shape up. Or he's going to ship you out. But he jumps right to the truth, doesn't he? He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He just gives him plain and simple. He tells him how he can fix this. He says, renounce your sins by doing what is right. And your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. I don't think I could have said it any more simple or in love, could you? I think it's straight to the point. But we're going to read on here. And we find out that King Nebuchadnezzar slides right back into his old ways, don't we? I'm going to read verses 28 through 32. It says, All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips. I mean, don't you think they were doing this, waiting for the lightning? It's a scary place to be. The words were still on his lips when the voice came from heaven... This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign or the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. This portion, the first part of it at least, it just oozes with pride and arrogance, doesn't it? It's filled with eyes and mys and me. Oh my goodness, this guy has the shortest memory ever, doesn't he? I mean, I can almost hear God saying, okay, that's it. Giving you a whole year to get your royal act cleaned up. Boys, get the bus ready. Don't bother fixing that air conditioning. I'm taking this guy on the ride of his life. And this field trip is going to take him out into the wilderness where he's going to live like an animal. Ugh, like an animal. And, and, you know, commentaries actually said he lived like an animal, that there is a mental disorder called zoanthropy that causes you to think that you're an animal and live accordingly. He lived like an animal. And I have a picture, if Douglas will put it up. There were several depictions, but I thought this was um, the one that kind of struck the most to me. It was just creepy looking. That's a miserable field trip right there, ladies. <laughs> that is bad. And I don't care... You would do well to learn this in the classroom. I don't know. If that doesn't make you want to learn it in the classroom, I don't know what will. 
that is the most powerful man in the world at the time. And he lived like that for seven years, literally as an animal. His hair grew long. He's on all fours. He's eating grass, not salad, grass, grass. And that's the bad news in the story, right? But we get this vision that God has given him. And there's good news in it, isn't there? There's good news. It's, it's our Heavenly Father who is very capable and sometimes willing to shake up our world a little bit. Is also very capable and very willing to walk through that discipline with us, isn't he? I want to finish up by reading verses 33 through 37. It says, immediately what had happened, or what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claw of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. I love that word. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven, the people of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor was returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My, ad, my advisors and my nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now, here it is, ladies. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So he lived like that for seven years. You know, I think it's kind of interesting. Um, if you want to put that picture back up for me, Douglas, of, well, the other, that one. Of this, when I saw this, it reminded me of something I do in my perennial flower bed. I read several years ago that if, when the flowers die off and it's done blooming, you take the plant and you bend it over towards the ground while it's still green, and you secure it in that spot. And I, want, I brought a picture of that for you to see. You can kind of see what I do with them right there. And it said if you do that... When you allow the nutrients from that, that green stalk to absorb down into these roots so they can grow deeper roots and multiply the bulbs underneath. And during that time, I was told I was supposed to water around it. I was supposed to keep the weeds away from it. Supposed to work the ground around it. And eventually, all that old stuff would die off. You know, I think it's amazing how God does that in his perennial flower garden. Don't you see it? I wish I could show them together, but we can't do a split screen apparently. But you know, in an appointed time, and at a point in time when discipline is needed in our lives to grow those deeper roots, he bends us down to our knees. And while we're in that, he secures us in that hard place. He protects us with a hedge of protection. And he tends to our needs while we're in that area. We're in that hard place absorbing everything we need to grow. Then, just like King Nebuchadnezzar, at yet another appointed time, appointed by God, he lifts us back up. Just like those flowers that come back after the harsh season. And they bloom again in the spring, don't they? And God backs up. And he watches us with delight 
as we bloom and we multiply and we add color and variety to his perennial flower garden. You see, our discipline is not wasted if it brings glory and honor to our heavenly Father, ladies. And you know, when King Nebuchadnezzar was restored by God, he knew then who was in charge, didn't he? There was no question. He knew exactly who was in charge of his flower garden at that point, didn't he? And we see that in verse 37, because we see him saying, giving God the praise, glory, and exalting God. And he's doing exactly what God created him to do at that point. It's the same thing he's created us to do. You see, God desires to regrow us without... He wants to grow us free of the fruit-rotting parasite of pride. And have no doubt, ladies, that those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Please pray with me. Precious Father, I just... I love the lessons that you give in this, Lord. I know that pride is an issue that every single one of us can raise our hand and say, yes, that's me. I think it's the, the source of almost every sin there is. Father, I pray that you would show us our pride. You would teach us how to walk away from it and how to be more humbled so we're more teachable. I love you, Lord, and I lift this up in Christ's name. Amen.